Nice to see you all. Nice to have the kids downstairs as well with us today. There's a few seats up the front if any of you are squashed. Um, this is an apple, as you can see. It's a very small apple, actually. I didn't want to waste a good juicy one on this uh, analogy. So, this is an apple, and this is a coin, 20 cent coin. So, I'm just going to put it in there. Right, I know there's a, no, there's a coin inside an apple. Okay, I'm going to explain that later. I know you're all so confused. I'm going to explain it in five minutes, don't worry. First, I'm just going, I'm just going to pray before I start. Uh, Father God, uh, thank you so much for your word, Lord. Thanks so much for the wonderful and beautiful truths and promises that are in it. Thank you so much for your Holy Spirit um, illuminating them promises and truths to us, Lord. I pray now that I would just be totally overcome by the Holy Spirit now as I speak, Lord. I pray that anything of my own opinion won't be heard, Lord. I won't be said, and I pray that I would just be totally hidden behind your cross. I pray that your son, Jesus Christ, would be magnified and glorified above all else this morning, and that we'd be uplifted and encouraged and reminded of who we are in you, reminded of what you've done for us, Lord, and that we'd um, just grow in our love and affection for you and those around us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay, so Colossians 3, chapter, chap, sorry, Colossians 3, chapter, Colossians 3, verse 1 to 17. Uh, you can stay there in your Bibles. I'll, I'll move around a little bit. Um, as, we, as we go through, but you can just stay there and I'll, I'll read the rest um, of the other passages. Um, so today I've got three points based on what we've just read. Thanks again, Joe. Um, the first point I'm going to look at and the first concept I'm going to look at is that we are hidden in Christ. You see that in verses one to four. Um, verse three specifically says, you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. The second point I'm going to make is how does that affect our lives? Um, I think there's a slide with these points up there. How does that affect our lives? Our identity in Christ, hidden in Christ, how does that affect our lives? That's in verses 5 to 10 and a bit in verse 12 as well. And then the last point I'm going to make is how does it affect our church and how does it affect our relationship with others? That's kind of in verses 11, 13 to 17 then as well. So the first point is the main point really and then the other two are really mixed to be honest. The perspective is nice just to separate them out but um, this really all flows, and as we know, Colossians is a letter to a church um, from St. Paul, and so it flows straight in from, from uh, chapter 2 into chapter 3, and then points 2 and 3 in, in, in what I'm talking at today, will, they'll bleed into each other and they'll be mixed in together. Um, they're not separate and distinct, really, say. And um, basically, chapter 3 is a turning point in the book where we see a shift from understanding who we are in Christ and what he's done for us, to understanding what our lives should really look like in response to that. Um, this order is very important, and we saw Ricky touching it last week, that identity in Christ, and, and even the first two chapters really are all about who we are in Christ and what he's done for us. And it's very common across all Paul's letters, really, where he starts in the early chapters saying, this is who you are in Christ, this is what Christ has done for you, this is what it means for you. And then as he progresses throughout the book, he moves on to, so in response to what I've just said, in response to who you are knowing Christ and what he's done for you, this is what your lives should look like. And that order is very important and something that we should be mindful of for our whole lives, really. Um, so we'll touch on briefly on some points and themes from chapter two, because they're really linked in. And as you can see, it starts with the word if then in verse one. So he's obviously working on something that he's already mentioned. So we're going to touch a bit on chapter two as well, very briefly, and then we'll continue in chapter three. So. Overall, the main idea, those, those are the three points, and overall the main idea is that our identity is in Christ. We're totally hidden in Christ. We are hidden in Christ. 
And then this totally changes us and affects our whole lives. So I'll say it again. Our, our identity is in Christ. We are hidden in Christ. This totally changes us and affects our whole lives. And that again ties in with the main theme of the whole kind of scripture or the whole book of Colossians and the sermon series that we're doing. It's all of Christ for all of life. And so we see how it totally changes our life as we're focused on Christ for all our life. So um, point one, so verse one, I'll read it again. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. So it says, if then, that means he's building on something that he's just said. If then you have been ra raised with Christ. So where does this come from? Colossians 2. You probably have it open if it's right next to you. Colossians 3 on your Bible. In verse 12, Ricky pointed this out last week. Colossians 2.12 says, Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. So we see from Colossians 2, and now again in Colossians 3, the first verse, that we're in union with Christ, we're identifying with Christ. So we are in union with Christ in his life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. This is a really true spiritual reality, and I know it's it's not true, we're not actually dead physically, we're still living, but it, this is a truer, deeper spiritual reality, and so it needs a bit of imagination to understand it, um, because it's not a physical thing. So we are dead, we have been raised, we are seated in heavenly places at the right hand of God in Christ. Ricky's talked about it last week, we're talking about it again today. Paul completes the discussion here on this union with Christ in, in chapter 3, and then transitions into how that affects our lives. So we're looking at the topic of union with Christ. We're going to look at it again in detail because it's the main point of the passage and everything else stems from it. If you get the first part wrong, you really can't move on to what your life should look like without it. It's the most important thing is that you understand what God has done for us in Christ and what our identity is in Christ. So I'm going to go, I'm going to go back to the apple analogy again. Finally, he said, it's so confusing. What is he doing? So we have an apple, right? And let's imagine that that apple is, is Christ, is Jesus Christ. And I've, I've done this analogy before for young adults, so don't spoil it for anyone who hasn't heard it. Jesus is the apple in this analogy, right? And it's not a perfect analogy, but it helps us understand it. And the coin is us, is, is you or me or all of us together. The coin is us. And so when you put the coin in the apple, the coin is completely hidden. It's in the apple. And so it's, it's very helpful, I find, that when you think about who you are in Christ, what is it? What does it mean that we have died with Christ? What does it mean that we've been raised with Christ? We're in Christ. Think of it in a physical way, even though it's not physical, it's spiritual, but think of it in that way because it helps us understand it. You have been placed in Christ by God, by the Holy Spirit. You're completely hidden in him, as it says in verse three. I'm gonna read it again. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Your life is completely hidden in Christ with God. So what that means for us is that when Christ or when God looks at us, he doesn't see our sin, our shame, our fallen nature. He doesn't see the coin like you can't see it right now. God sees the apple. God sees Christ. We're hidden in Christ. God sees the perfect righteous life of Jesus Christ when he looks at us. And so he counts us as righteous, even though we're sinful and broken. And like he says in Matthew chapter 3, verses 17, 
just after Jesus gets baptized, there's a loud voice cries down from heaven, and the voice from heaven, who's God speaking, says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. What a beautiful thing to imagine that and understand and realize that that's what God says about us. This is my beloved son, this is my beloved daughter with whom I am well pleased. Not because of anything we've done. We know that we're broken, we're sinful, we're messed up in all sorts of ways, and we turn our back on God every opportunity we get. But because of what Christ has done, because of his perfect life, death, resurrection, burial, ascension, because of that, God, when God looks at us, he sees beautiful son, beautiful daughter with whom I'm well pleased, beloved son, beloved daughter. And understanding that is so important. And from an understanding of that position, we can then move into what God has for us, living a life that God is pleasing to God and that he wants for us. I'm going to reference some other, some other pastors here now, but you don't have to turn to them. There should be a slide for some of them if you want to read along. Just to kind of further make the point of our identity with Christ, our union with Christ, how we're in union with him in his life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. Romans 6 is the next one. Uh, Romans 6, 7, and 8. Everyone who knows me knows that Romans is my favorite book. Uh, I, I always end up coming back to Romans in every uh, sermon I preach. So Romans 6, 7, and 8 are, are a really good um, explanation of this union with Christ. And into 7 and 8 then is how, what it means for us and, and things like that. But I'm just going to read a little bit of Romans 6. Uh, this is verse 1 of Romans 6. It says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Listen to this now. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we surely, certainly shall be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now we have, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So there we see again the picture of baptism. And for those of us who are baptized, what it means, what the symbol of baptism is, is as we're plunged into the waters, it's a symbol of us identifying with Christ in his death. And we're in union with Christ and being plunged into the water is a symbol of us dying and Christ's death, and we're unified in that death. And then being in the water is a symbol of burial, where Christ was in the grave and we're under the water. It's like the grave, the burial. And then when you're raised back up out of the water again, it's like being raised back to life as Jesus was. And so we're unified again in his resurrection and, and the newness of life and ascension and all that. And so that's what Paul's getting out here when he talks about, do you not know those of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? That's why you can say in Colossians 3, 3, that you have died. It's not that we're physically dead because we're not. We know we're still living and breathing, but we were dead. We were made dead in Christ's uh, crucifixion. And so we died to sin and then we were raised again to life. Galatians 3.26 is another good uh, passage for this. It says, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There's that language again. 
Um, Galatians 2.20 doesn't mention baptism, but it's, it's, it's helpful as well. It says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. And so we see how we're dead, the old life is gone. We've been raised to new life in Christ Jesus. And the last point, so that's the, the life, death, burial of Jesus, the resurrection, and then the ascension. Ephesians 2 talks about the ascension here. I'll start in verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us, and this is the part in part here now in verse 6, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So I'm going to bring back in the apple here again. Uh, George, will you mind the apple from me there? So now George has the apple in this seat here, right? So if we're in Christ and Christ has ascended to heaven and he's seated at the right hand of God, and so if the apple is in George's hand, where's the coin? It's in George's hand as well. And so if we're in Christ and Christ is seated in the heavenly places at the right hand of God, so we're also set at the right-hand side of God in the heavenly places. And again, that's a spiritual reality that we're already there. And I know it's confusing to say, but what, what about my life on earth? I'm still living on earth. How, how do I make sense of that reality? And there, there is like a dual reality there where in a physical sense, we are still on earth, but in a truer, deeper spiritual sense, we're seated with Christ in the heavenly places at the right-hand side of God, which is, which is, an, amazing, which is an amazing truth. And that's why then, that's, that's where the whole point of this passage hinges on. And that's why he's able to give these commands at the start of chapter 3 where he says, then seek the things that are above. If you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So if we're seated in the heavenly places, we shouldn't have our mind on earth anymore, on the earthly things we should have our mind on heaven because that's where we are, hidden in Christ, and that's where our identity is. And so I have um, a story to tell, a funny story. Um, I, was, I, went to, I was lucky enough to go to Bali um, on my honeymoon uh, about almost six years ago now. Myself and my wife went over to Bali, and um, we had a great time. It was lovely. We were very lucky to go there. We were there for about three weeks. Um, and part of this journey, we went to a, a place called... Um, Gilear, which was a really small, small island off the coast of Bali. There's no roads there. There was only a couple of hundred people there. There was no cars. It was just a couple of donkeys and horse and carts and stuff like that. Um, and so when I was there, we went to a restaurant on the beach. Uh, nice, we stayed in a little beach hut thing. We went out into the beach for a restaurant and it was a nice, beautiful, idyllic place as far away from Cork as you could possibly be nearly. And we're sitting down enjoying, enjoying the peace, enjoying the relaxation, you know, away from our lives back home. And we went to a restaurant and I ordered food, whatever, I think it was fish or something. And I ordered a Fanta. I said, do you have Fanta orange? And she said, yeah, we do. I said, thanks, I'll have a Fanta. And um, I, got, I drank my Fanta. Anyway, and just as the, as the waitress was leaving after I ordered the Fanta, I heard a voice next to me saying, did they not have any tenora, no? <laughs> And uh, we started laughing, looked around, and it was another couple from Cork. Uh, and um, for those of you who don't know who are from Cork, Tenor is a, is a Cork 
orange drink, basically a soft drink, and you can't get it anywhere outside of Cork. And uh, obviously we had a good laugh about it and stuff, and we were chatting to him a bit. And so what I want to paint this analogy is uh, related back to what I'm saying now in the sermon is, when I'm over in Bali, I can't expect to order Tanora. Like I'm not, I'm obviously not going to ask for Tanora because I know they don't have it. And I'm not going to ask for a bacon and cabbage or a Irish stew or, you know, Barry's tea or something like that, or a glass of Raza, because they won't understand me. They don't have it over there. And so this is where the transition happens then from knowing who we are in Christ, knowing our identity in Christ, and then moving from a place of understanding who we are and transitioning into um, what our life should look like in Christ. He's saying, set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. So when I was in Bali, I needed to set my mind on the things that were in Bali, the dishes that were there, the drinks that were there, not on the things that were back home. And so that brings me into my second point then, where it's how does this affect our lives? And so basically we looked at there, we're, we're hidden in Christ, our identity is in Christ. This totally changes and affects our whole lives. That's all of Christ for all of life. So how, how does it affect our lives? How does it make sense that it affects our lives? Why should it affect our lives? So I'm going to read the passage and I'm going to come back to the analogy again in a second. It says, put, this is verse 5 then, put to death, therefore, and, and I'm going to pause as I read this, but note that therefore there, it's, it's building on what he's just said. So whenever there's a therefore, it's linking back to the argument he's just made. So the only reason we can move on is because we've understood who we are in Christ and what our identity is in Christ. So put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you two once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So I'll read verse 12 as well. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. So I'm not, I'm not going to go into great detail on, on all these sins and all these things that we're supposed to put on. Um, one reason is because we're going to be having a, a sermon series around Lent on the seven deadly sins. So we're going to depth on a lot of these things then. So I'm not, I'm not going to like in depth explain anything like that for now, maybe because the kids are around as well, it might not be the best idea to do it. But essentially he lists things there, sexual immorality, that's everything, any sort of sexual activity outside um, of the relationship between one husband and one wife. Um, we've got impurity, passion, they're linked in this context to the, to the first one, sexual immorality as well. Evil desire, I mean, that's pretty self-explanatory, just evil desire, wanting to do something bad, wanting to do something wrong. Uh, and then he says covetous, covetousness, which is idolatry. And so the link between idolatry and covetousness there quickly is just that if you're a covetous person and if you're coveting things, it, it becomes idolatry because you're saying that the things that you want, the things that you desire, that, that's what will satisfy you. That's what will make you happy. That's what will complete you. And that's putting things, money, career, relationships, whatever it is, that's putting those things in the place where God should be, because you're saying, if I just had this, or if I had that care, if I had that house, if I had that job, then I'll be happy, I'll be fulfilled, when that's the place that God should have. And so putting those things in covetousness before God is idolatry. So that's the link there. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And so even though I'm briefly running over these things, it doesn't take away the significance of them. You see here that 
God has wrath for these things. Like they're, they're serious, important things. And just, just for the sake of time and stuff, I'm not, I'm not going to go into depth of them, but these are serious things that God takes very seriously. And so we shouldn't just brush them off. Um, because we have freedom in Christ, we shouldn't just say that, oh, whatever I do is fine. Um, as it says in Romans 6, verse 1, which I didn't read, I don't think, um, we're not to continue in sin anymore by no means, um, just because of who we are in Christ. So, but now it says, now you must put them all away. And this is a continuation of the list. Anger and wrath, they're, they're, they're similar. Obviously, we know what anger is. Wrath is obviously just a, a kind of a deeper, more furious anger and a, a, an internal rage and can be expressed as well. So they're linked. Malice is just um, an intent to hurt someone, uh, an intent to do harm to someone, whether emotionally or spiritually or physically. Uh, and slander is similar to malice in that it's, it's how you speak can hurt someone, uh, what you say about them attacking their character, false allegations, things like that. Uh, and then the last one is obscene talk from your mouth. So, I mean, crass humor, um, just filthy talk in general, like that's all stuff that we have to put away. They're all part of that list that Paul says aren't characteristic of what your new life is. That is earthly and you must put it to death. And there's that talk about death again. So note that a lot of these things are, are internal, like wrath, anger, um, you know, passion, you know, covetousness, and pretty much all of them can, have, in one perspective, have, have an internal aspect where they're things that come from inside us, they're, they're internal. And big contrast to that is, is Colossians 2, what Ricky said last week, where the rules that Paul says aren't significant, the things that you shouldn't let people disqualify you, as it says in Colossians 2, is like, you know, food and drink, celebrating festivals, Sabbaths, human precepts, human teaching, um, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. They're all, they're all surface level. They're all man-made religion, man-made traditions. And that's not what Christ is concerned about. That's not what Paul is concerned about in these writings. Those things are just a shadow, as, as it says in Colossians 2. What really matters is not the things on the surface, on the outside, the food, the drink, the Sabbaths, whatever, the, the festivals. What really, truly matters is the internal work in us. The, the evil desires within us, the, the wrath, the malice, the, the, the covetousness, they're all the things that are the serious things that need to be dealt with. Um, and so how do we actually deal with them? How do, we, how do we move away from the earthly things and into the heavenly things that God has for us? Um, again, it comes back to, to the first point in, in the start of chapter three. Um, but one more analogy I'm going to give is, if you imagine, if you imagine right now that you, this is kind of a silly analogy, but if you turn the dog magically into a human, just right now, like in the blink of an eye, just imagine that there's a dog here and I just turned him into a human. Like, his identity now is a human. His nature, his, his species, his DNA, everything is completely altered. He's a new creation because he's not a dog anymore. He's a human. But when that human, when that dog becomes a human, he might have some old habits that he carries over that he's used to. You know, he's not, he, maybe he can't speak yet. He crawls around on all, all fours. Maybe he goes to the toilet in public. He likes dog food. He sniffs things that he shouldn't sniff. You know, he might have some old habits and old, old things that he hangs onto because he's, he's not used to his new life yet. And so that can, I know it's not a perfect analogy, but that can be kind of similar as when we become a new creation. Like our identity is completely in Christ. It's, it's totally changed. There's nothing that can ever change that because we are a new creation, as it says in 2 Corinthians 5.17. Nothing can take that away from us. But because 
our habits, we're used to our old life, sometimes it's hard for us to, to grow and know what our new identity is and act like what our identity actually is. And so even though we're completely changed, we're a new creation, sometimes we can hang on to some of the old habits as those things that Paul listed. He said, in these things you once walked, so now we're supposed to not walk on them anymore, but it can be hard to give them up. S same thing about the, the thing in, in Bali, say, when I was over there, if, if I'd moved there, I moved somewhere else abroad, and say I was used to how Irish people would talk, used to the Cork slang, used to the jokes, the sense of humour, the, the food. It's, it's sometimes it's hard to adjust to a new culture when you're abroad on holidays, or if you've moved abroad even more so. Sometimes you can, you can crave the old things. You want, oh, I'd love a, a cup of Barry's tea, but I can't have it. Or, you know, I'm, you're, you're, you make a joke, but people don't get it because it doesn't make sense in their culture or whatever. So you see how our old life can linger on into our new life just because of how our habits are set and how our mindset is. But no, here, no, this is where really the rubber really hits the road. Paul says in verse 2, it starts in your mind. Set your minds on things that are above and your mind and your heart. Set your minds that are on things that are above. So set your mind on the new things, the human things, the things of valley or wherever you are, the heavenly things, not on things that are inert, like the old life in Ireland or Cork or the, the old life of a dog. So set your minds on the things that are above, not the things that are inert. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. The old life is completely dead. It's gone. The new life is now here. You're seated with Christ in the heavenly places. So the answer to leaving these things behind and moving into the new things, you need to put off the old, put on the new, put to death, therefore, it says, the earthly things, embrace the new things, and how you do this is by just embracing your identity. If there was a, a human acting like a dog or whatever, you didn't, you didn't tell him you're a human, you have to start acting like a human, you're, you have a new identity now, you have to maybe go get a job, you start paying rent, you can't expect the dog to pay rent, you know, you're saying you can't crawl around anymore, you have to learn how to speak, such and such. You're not living in Cork anymore, you're living abroad, you need to learn the new culture, you need to learn the new food, whatever it is. Embracing your identity, being mindful of your identity in Christ is what empowers us to move into what God has for us. It helps us to set aside what's gone, what was before, and move into what, what lies ahead. So it says then in verse 9, do not lie to one another. That's, that's the last negative thing that he, he mentions of, of the list lying we want to be honest with each other we all know what lying is it's obviously not something that god is fond of um, and even in our church you know it's good for us to be honest with each other and be honest people in general so do not lie to one another seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator so there you go again put off the old self put on the new self and how do we do that mindfully embracing our new identity and growing in knowledge, there's the word knowledge, renewed in knowledge of our position in Christ. This helps us to grow in his likeness. Willfully and intentionally put off the things of the old self and put on the new self. And this will help us grow in his likeness and holiness. Out with the old, in with the new. I have a quote from, from Warren Wearsby here. I think there's a slide for it as well, but it says, we were formed in God's image and deformed from God's image by sin. But through Jesus Christ, we can be transformed into God's image again. As we grow in knowledge of the word of God, we will be transformed by the spirit of God. So that's what it's saying there in verse 10. You put off nine, put off the old self, 10, put on the new self. 
How is, what is this new self? How do we get this new self to come about? It's being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. And I believe that knowledge is talking about is knowledge of the word of God, knowledge of our identity. Where do we, where do we know? How do we know that our, that our identity is in Christ? How do we know what Christ has done for us? How do we know all that we have in him? Only by reading the word of God. That's the only place you'll get it. And so the further and deeper and more time you spend in the word of God as you're growing in Christ, the more and more you'll help understand your identity in him, the more and more you'll understand what he's done for you, the more and more you understand what the new life is and all that you can walk in. And so that's how we do it. Focus on what he's done for us. Focus on Christ. Um, focus on the word of God, the knowledge of the word of God. Um, and that's why it's one of, our, one of our essentials in Calvary Cork, the word of God, because we know that's the only way that we can move forward in Christ. It's the only way where we can know truly what he's done for us and what our true identity is. Um, Put on then, it says, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. So this, there was the negative things, and this is what we're meant to put on now. Put on, this is the new self, what the new self looks like. As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts. So we should have compassion in our hearts. That's what God's not worried about the surface level. He's worried about our heart. He wants us to have a compassionate heart. Kindness, another internal thing. Be kind to people. Humility. That's another one of our Calvary Cork essentials there, humility, being humble. The reason why is because we know that we're nothing without Christ. We know that we're just broken people without him. We know that everything that's good in our lives is because of what God has given us as an undeserved gift through Jesus. So that's why it's one of our essentials there again. Humility, meekness, which is similar to humility, you know, gentleness, uh, and patience, being, being patient with one another and bearing with one another. Um, so that's the old self, what the new self should be is what I just read. We walk into that by understanding our identity, embracing our identity, um, growing in the words, growing in knowledge. That's so important. The, the song we just sang at the start is a great reminder of this. Uh, you know, turn your eyes upon Jesus. The, the chorus goes, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. I was so glad we started with that this morning. It was a blessing to me to sing that. That's what we should be doing for our whole lives, not just as we come in here. That's how we grow in what Paul is asking us to grow in here and put away the old. Just turn your eyes upon Jesus. Be so focused on him. Look in his wonderful face. And then the earthly things, they'll grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace because Jesus is so beautiful, he's so powerful, so magnificent. The life he's given us is so amazing. The old life will just fade away. The old life will be so undesirable and not appealing to you anymore the more you're focused on Christ and what he's done. Another song that we're actually going to sing later is um, Before the Throne of God Above, and it, it's probably my favorite song of all time. Uh, one of the verses there says, when Satan tempts me to despair, and this links in with it again, and tell, tells me of the guilt within. So when we're, when we're struggling with the ways of the old life, those earthly things, and Satan comes to look what you've done, look what you're after messing up, and again, he tells us of the guilt within. The answer is to upward I look, look upward and see him there. Christ Jesus, who made an end of all my sin. I'm looking forward to singing that later. So whenever we have struggling with guilt, we're struggling with leaving these old things behind, you just look upwards, look to Christ, set your mind on the things that are above, not the things of earth, look to Christ, and then you'll be able to, you know, find peace there, comfort there, be reminded of the love of God, and from that position you'll be able to move in to what God has for us. Um, so there we have it again. So that we started, we are, we're hidden in Christ, our identity is in Christ. This totally changes us and affects our whole lives as we've just seen. So that's again, all of Christ for all of life. This brings me on to my last point, final point, um, point three. 
is, so it's very closely linked to point three, to be fair. It's how does it affect our church? How does it affect our relationship with others? So obviously as we're growing and what Christ has for us and we're changed, as that list has said, letting the old behind, embracing the new, you know, kindness, compassionate hearts. How does that affect our church, what our church should look like? And how does that affect our relationships with others? I'm going to read verse 11 there first. I'm going to start there. It says, Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. I'm going to pause there for a second. So this is, this is an amazing point. I love this point. First, the first word is here, so it's good to link back to what does here mean, what's, what's he talking about. Uh, obviously in verse 9 and 10, what we just read, it says, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices, put on the new self. So that's the here he's talking about. When we all put off the old self, put on the new self, when we're living in that sort of community where we're a new creation in Christ, there is not Greek and Jew, and Greek and Jew means basically the, the Jewish people back then in the Old Testament were God's chosen people, and the Jews would have seen everyone else, which were the Greeks in, in that kind of society at that time, when Paul's writing, they're not God's chosen people. So there was a massive divide there. You're either God's chosen people or you're not. You're a Jew or you're a Greek. And the Greeks would have been looked down upon by the Jews in a way, as we can see. We see evidence of this in Galatians chapter 2, uh, verses 11 to 14. This is the story of how Peter had, to, or sorry, Paul had to rebuke Peter because when other Jews came around Peter, he stopped dining with the Greeks or the Gentiles, the people who weren't Jewish, the uncircumcised, as it says there as well. So, and, and Paul had to rebuke him for that, saying, do you not know that in Christ, there's no Jew or Greek, there's no uncircumcised or circumcised, there's no difference because we're all in Christ, we're a new creation. Um, that's the first one, and that, that, that covers the uncircumcised and circumcised as well. Then there's the barbarian, Scythian. So, I, I mean, it's not very obvious what, what those people are, what they are. There's a couple of ways of looking at what the word barbarian means. The most basic way of looking at it is the Greeks in that society at the time would have been, would have thought highly of themselves, I suppose, in that they were educated, you know, they were to philosophy and, and education, and they would have been civilized, speaking the same language, and they would have looked at the rest of the world, say the rest of the Europe around them or whatever, as barbarians, because they couldn't speak their language and they saw them as uneducated and, and less than them. And so they're, that's the barbarians, the Scythians then, were people who came from where modern day kind of southern Russia is and they were also barbarians but they were like seen as the worst kind of barbarians they were the most violent and especially kind of hated and looked down upon by the Greeks in society at that time then you have this, the slave and the free and I mean that that is more obvious where obviously a slave is is under a master and isn't a free person and a free person is so I mean, I presume that there obviously would have been a massive class division there and people would have looked down on the slaves. But this, this verse and others that I'm going to read in a second just breaks all the molds and goes straight across all cultural boundaries, all societal boundaries, and there's no place for any of that in, in Christianity. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and circumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. So in... One passage I'm going to reference in backing up that point is 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12. It says, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all of the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. Listen to this. For in one spirit 
we were all baptized into one body. There's that image about baptism again. We were all baptized into one body, Jews, Greeks, slaves are free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Another verse, Galatians 3, chapter, verse 26 to 28, I read 26 earlier. Where did I put the apple? Oh, I forgot, you have it. I forgot I gave it away. Galatians 3, 26, it says, as I read earlier, for in Christ you were all sons of God through faith, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ Jesus have put on Christ. So there it is again. You see where then it says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither, there's no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So we see Paul making this point over and over again in his, in his, in his uh, epistles. Whenever he talks about our identity in Christ and being baptized into Christ, nearly the next thing he always says, because we're one in Christ, it doesn't matter if we're a 20 cent coin or a 10 cent coin. It doesn't matter if we're a 10 cent coin or even a one cent coin. They're kind of rare these days. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter who you are in your old life. It doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Greek, circumcised, uncircumcised. It doesn't matter if you're male, female, slave, free, barbarian, Scythian. It doesn't matter if you're black or white, if you're rich or poor, if you're upper class, working class, if you never went to school, if you have a PhD, if you're from the north side or the south side, if you're from Dare Park or if you're from Papua New Guinea. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter one single bit. You can't see if that's a 10 cent coin or a 20 cent coin inside this. It's the same in Christ. Once we're baptized into Christ, there's no difference between us all. So it's completely incompatible. Which, with Christianity and with who we are in Christ to discriminate on any basis between anyone. So we should be actively fighting against that. We should be actively saying that we're all one in Christ. There's no difference. We're all equal in Christ, regardless of what your background is, regardless of where you come from. I love that. It's, it's a beautiful argument. It's a beautiful point. And we've seen in the last few years, you know, there's been a a good kind of reuptake of, of you know, anti-racist movements and stuff. And whatever your opinion is and the political views of it, it's obviously we can all agree as Christians that racism is bad, discrimination is bad, sexism is bad. The only reason why this is bad, in a secular worldview, I think there's no logical argument really. If there's no absolute moral guidance, there's no logical argument against racism, against classism, against sexism, against any sort of discrimination. If there's no absolute truth, if there's no absolute moral guidance to tell you if it's wrong. And if people are to just live their lives however they want, do whatever makes them happy, survival of the fittest, just do whatever they want. In that case, there's no logical argument against discrimination. There's not really who's to say it's wrong if there's no absolute moral argument to say it is. So I believe that the roots of the anti-discrimination and anti-racism movements and the whole concept of that are found in Christian doctrine, are found in the pages of, of scripture in passages like these that were absolutely revolutionary at the time and absolutely are still revolutionary today to say that we're all equal in Christ. So from passages like that and from the very basic concept that all humans are made in the image of God and are deserving of respect and dignity regardless of where they come from, regardless of their race or anything else. Because of this Christian teaching and these Christian concepts, we're able to understand true equality amongst all humans, true equality in Christ. And I believe this is a gift that we've given to the secular world um, in recent years, especially where the movements are coming, where um, you know, they're embracing essentially a Christian theology, in my opinion, that says we're all equal regardless of where we come from, 
regardless of your social class or anything like that, um, which, is, which is really good and which is, I think is a nice thing to be able to, to be a part of um, and to realise. So there is the apple again, we're all in there. So I'll move on to verses 13 to 15. I'll read it there. So I'll start in 12 actually. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Then it says, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so, also, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. This is what our culture in our church should look like. Obviously, we made the point about discrimination. That's totally gone out the door. Our church should be a place where we fight against that, and that's all gone. And moving on then, it's a place where we should bear with one another. We should be forgiving each other as we have been forgiven, as the Lord has forgiven us. We don't want to be like the unforgiving servant in Jesus' parable in Matthew 18, verses 21 to 35. In that parable, there was a servant who owed another servant money, and it was, say, a fiver. And the, no, I'll start the other way around. The servant owed his master money, say it was 100,000 euro. And the servant went to his master and said, please forgive me at this debt, I can't pay it off. And the master said, okay, I'll have mercy and I'll forgive you, and I forgive you the 100 grand. And then that same servant who just got forgiven 100 grand goes back to his fellow servant who owes him five euro and says, give me back that fiver you owe me. And he throws him into prison because he can't pay him back. So that's what we're like if we don't forgive each other if we don't bear with one another in patience and forgive for the wrongings that we've done to each other. And yeah, we can, you can discuss it, you can work it out, I'm not saying that you, you can't discuss it or you know, be human about it and just have a chat, but eventually we have to move into to forgiving one another because we don't want to be like that unforgiving servant because we've been forgiven so much, so we also must forgive. Um, and in Mark 12.30, I'm going to read that in a sec. I like how he ends up saying, love, put on love, another thing that we have to put up or put on after we've put off the old love, our old self, we put on love. And love pretty much sums up everything that he's saying in this little passage here. You know, there's the forgiveness, harmony, peace, bearing with one another, and it's all summed up in, in love, in the word love. And if you're ever in doubt, just try to think of what the most loving thing is. Is this loving for me to do this? Is, is the culture of our church characterized by love and loving each other? Because this is obviously the greatest commandment, as, as Jesus said in, in Mark 12, 30. Um, it says here, I'll start in 30, yeah, it says, And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. That's the first important commandment. The second is this, Jesus says, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no greater commandment than these. And so it's, it's again, it's simple. I know most people would have heard that before. Like, it's something that we're all probably so familiar with. But again, we see it here, it should characterize our church. We should love our neighbor as ourself. Forgiveness, harmony, peace, that's what will characterize us as we put off our old self, because that's what it says in verse 12, put off, and sorry, in verse 12 it says put on. So when we embrace our new identity, embrace what Christ has done for us, then we're able to move into to that forgiveness, harmony, peace, and loving, uh, loving each other as, as we should by embracing who we are in Christ. So very briefly then, my, my last kind of sub-point then is, is looking at verses 16 and, and 17. So verse 16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs 
with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So to, for me, as a, as a worship leader, someone who does music, this is a very important passage to me. And I think I've spoken about it a few times, even just with call to worship and stuff. So the order here is, is very important. And again, it keeps coming back to the, the, our position in Christ. It says in verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. That's the first part. So every time we come in here on a Sunday morning, that's why we do call to worship before we start singing, because we want to remind ourselves of what Christ has done for us. We want the word of Christ, Christ to dwell in us richly. And then in response to that, we can give thanks and we can sing and we can praise God. So that's why we do call to worship. That's why we have songs and stuff. That's why we sing. We sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. That's why church looks like what it is because of passages like this and others. Um, one thing I want to note there in that little passage is, is how much thankfulness is mentioned. It's mentioned three times. It's mentioned in verse, firstly, it's mentioned in verse 15. Yeah, the end of verse 15, like part B, and be thankful, it says. In verse 16, it says, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And then verse 17 at the end, it says, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And I think that's the attitude we need to come in with every Sunday when we're about to worship. It's the attitude for our whole lives, really. Being thankful for our identity in Christ. Being thankful for who God is. Being thankful for what he's done for us, for what he's doing, for what he will do. That'll help us to have the right sort of posture, have the right mindset as we come to worship and for our whole lives. Um, we need to be thankful. Thankfulness is, is so important. Um, the last thing then in verse 17, really quickly, it says, and whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of, our Lord of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And that just totally encapsulates everything in our whole lives. It's again, all of Christ for all of life. Whatever you do in your whole life, whether it's singing worship in church, whether it's uh, teaching in church, whether it's, you know, working, going to school, going to university, whatever it is, do it in the name of Jesus. Focus on him, be mindful of him, always be thankful to him giving thanks to God the Father through him. And that's such a key aspect of the Christian life, is having that attitude uh, in every situation, in everything that we do. And so, as, we're, as we are going to sing in a minute again, we're going to sing two, two songs, I think, in a minute again. Let's be mindful of that. Let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. Let's be mindful of what he's done for us. Let's be mindful of our identity in him. Let's be thankful for what he's done. Um, and then let's give back, as it says in Mark 12:30 again, you know, we're meant to love the Lord our God with our heart, all our heart, soul, um, mind, and strength. So as we're worshiping, let's do that. Let's, let's be passionate. You know, it says earlier not to be passionate, but I think it's about different things. We can be passionate about God. That's a good thing. We can be passionate about worshiping him. And so as we're singing again in a minute, singing these songs, I'm looking forward to it. We can really go for it and worship him with all our strength, all our heart, all our souls, all our mind. Uh, and really, really give it socks um, because of what he's done for us. Uh, we're also, as we're going to be singing now, we're going to do communion also. And it's our first time in a long time that we're just going to do it the old way where there's just, there's um, cups of juice and crackers at the back. And they're just, they're all stacked in the one cup. There's the first cup has the cracker and the second cup has the juice. So you can just grab the cup. Uh, you can bring it back to your seat or just take it down there in your own time. Um, we're not going to uh, be led from the front or anything. Just as we're worshiping, as we're singing songs like Behold Before the Throne of God Above, um, as we're mindful of those verses that we read earlier, um, let's really reflect on, it's the most amazing, really, way for us to set our minds on things above is, is the, emblem, the emblems of communion. It's a beautiful physical reminder of what Jesus has done for us, how his blood was spilled for us to seal us into his new covenant, uh, how his body was broken for us to take the wrath of God that was deserved for us, but he took it on him instead. 
And so as we're taking communion, as we're singing, let's be mindful about what we've, what we've read this morning, what we've talked about, um, and let's um, just go back and take it in our own time and let's reflect on what he's done and be grateful to him and giving him thanks. Uh, also, there's the prayer team. You know, if you want to go back and get prayer, um, just please wear a mask if you, if you do go back because you have to, I suppose, go close to him to try to explain what you want prayer for. If you do go back, just for respect out of the people on the prayer team. Um, but yeah, besides that, Let's just be so focused. And as we move on in the rest of our lives, know that the, the big idea, again, is just that, you know, we need to put off the old self. Our identity is in Christ. We're hidden in Christ. Remember that, we're hidden in Christ. Our identity is in him. And this totally changes us. It affects our whole lives. And so we have all of Christ for all of life. Um, and so, yeah, let's, let's worship now uh, and take communion together in a minute. So I'm just going to pray briefly. Father God, Thank you so much for all that you've done for us. Thank you so much for our identity in you. Thank you so much that we're hidden in Christ, that our sinful nature is dead, that the old man is gone, that we've been crucified with Christ, that we have a new life in you, Lord, that we're seated in the heavenly places with you. Thank you so much for that new identity. Help us to embrace our identity, Lord, and move into what you have for us. Help us to worship you freely, Lord, now knowing who we are in you. Help us to give thanks because you deserve it, Lord. You deserve all the praise and all the glory and all the honor. I pray that you would just bless our time now as we sing and as we take communion together. In Jesus' name, amen.